They called it the trial of the century. The year was 1934 and it had it all. A handsome aviator, the most famous man in the world. A wealthy socialite, a member of a prominent political dynasty. An angelic, curly-haired, blue-eyed baby. A locked room. A hapless defendant. And a mysterious midnight meeting in a cemetery. Mix yourself a classic jazz-age cocktail, the French 75, and imagine it's 1934. You're sitting at a table in La Grande Duc in Old Montmartre in Paris. The air is blue with smoke, and Josephine Baker is on stage, and she is on fire. Our tale begins in 1919. Raymond Orteg offered a prize of $25,000 to the first pilot to fly non-stop from New York to Paris. For the next eight years, a number of aviators tried to make the journey and claim the prize. All of them failed, and more than a few died. Then a shy airmail pilot from Minnesota begged, borrowed, and raised money from friends and businessmen. He had a single-engine aircraft built that he named the Spirit of St. Louis. On a dark night, he taxied to the runway at Roosevelt Field in New York. There was just enough room for him to sit in the cockpit. He had a few sandwiches, a thermos bottle, and some charts, nothing else. Thirty hours later, he appeared over Paris and followed the Seine to Orley Field. His life would never be the same. He was fated by kings and queens and presidents. He toured the world and became a wealthy man. An industrialist gave him investment advice and also introduced him to his daughter, Anne Morrow. They married in 1929 and had a son, and they named him Charles Jr. or Charlie. In order to escape the crowds and find a bit of privacy for their new family, they left New York and purchased an estate across the river in Hopewell, New Jersey. Then on March 1st, 1932, the bottom fell out of their world. They had planned to go to the theater that night, but little Charlie was sick, so they stayed home. About 10 o'clock, they were sitting downstairs and heard a noise. Charlie's nurse checked the baby's room. The second floor window was open and the crib was empty and an envelope was on the windowsill. Charles ran upstairs and screamed, Anne, they've stolen our son. Charles and the butler ran outside and found a broken ladder on the ground by the window and a baby blanket lay nearby. The police and the FBI investigated. There were no fingerprints in the room or on the ladder. The envelope contained a note. It was written in broken English and demanded $50,000. The note also had an identifying mark, a red circle inside two blue circles with holes punched all around. Word of the kidnapping spread quickly. Newspapers all over the world covered the crime. Lindbergh and the police were inundated with calls and letters claiming knowledge of the kidnapping. 
Eventually, even Al Capone himself got involved. He sent word from his prison cell in Sing Sing that he would have the baby released if he was let out of prison first. Soon, another note arrived at the Lindbergh home. It was another ransom note, but this time it demanded $70,000. The note had the same identifying circles. A few days later, a third note was delivered. This time, the note said that a well-known New York personality named John Condon would be the intermediary between the Lindberghs and the kidnappers. Condon placed an ad in the New York Post in code. He was to meet with someone in Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. The man said his name was John. Condon didn't get a clear look at his face, but he did remember that he spoke with a Scandinavian accent. Condon asked for proof that the baby was alive. John said that he would return the baby's pajamas and assured Condon that Charlie was alive. A few days later, blue pajamas arrived in the mail with a postmark from Brooklyn. On April 1st, Condon delivered a wooden box containing $50,000 in gold certificates to a cab driver. The cab sped off and Condon never heard from the kidnappers again. Later, Charlie's body was found in the woods, less than a mile from his home. His little skull was crushed. The whole world mourned, and the Lindberghs were devastated. Eventually, they sold their home in New Jersey and moved to Europe. The police, the FBI, and dozens of amateur sleuths investigated the crime. At first, the investigators were convinced that it must have been an inside job. After all, the Lindberghs had 29 servants. Suspicion soon focused on a housekeeper who seemed very nervous during her questioning. After the fourth time the police interrogated her, she committed suicide by swallowing cyanide. Later, though, the police confirmed that the alibi she had given them held up. John Condon, the intermediary, was also a suspect since he was picked by the kidnappers. Some people even suspected Lindbergh himself. The case turned cold for two years until September of 1934, when a bank teller noticed a gold certificate with a license plate number written on it. The license plate was traced to a German immigrant, Bruno Hauptmann. When the police searched his house, they found $14,000 of the ransom money and wood from the box that it was delivered in. Hauptmann was indicted for kidnapping and murder. He maintained his innocence, but he was convicted in what newspapers all over the world called the trial of the century. He was sentenced to die in the electric chair. The authorities offered to commute his sentence to life if he confessed and identified anyone who helped him, but he continued to say that he had nothing to do with the crime. He was executed in 1935. Case closed. Or is it? Was Bruno Hauptmann the kidnapper? If he was, did he act alone? 85 years later, questions remain. Why were there two sets of footprints near the open window? And why did none of the footprints match Hauptmann? Why were Hauptmann's fingerprints not on the ladder? A book published in 2012 may provide some answers. The book was Cemetery John, and in it, author Robert Zorn makes a compelling case that the mastermind of the Lindbergh kidnapping was a German immigrant named John Kroll. Zorn's research was inspired by a story his father told him. Eugene Zorn was a world-class economist, but when he was a boy, he grew up in the Bronx near two brothers, John and Walter Kroll. 
They were older than him, but they shared an interest in stamp collecting, and so they let him hang around with them. One day, at an amusement park, young Gene Zorn heard the brothers and another man discussing the Lindbergh kidnapping. He never forgot that day, and years later, he told his son about it. They discussed writing a book, and Robert Zorn began to investigate the case in earnest. He reviewed the FBI files and other documents regarding the case. At the time, James Condon described Cemetery John as having a, a fleshy mass on his thumb, and this matches pictures of Kroll taken in the mid-20th century. The police artist sketch, based on Condon's description of the man, also resembles John Kroll. Kroll and his brother worked as deli clerks in a grocery store. When baby Charlie's pajamas were sent to Lindbergh, they were wrapped in deli paper. Also, there were traces of animal fat on the notes, and the ransom notes were all postmarked from a post office near Kroll's house. And the handwriting on the ransom note clearly resembles that of John Kroll as well. Shortly after the ransom was paid, the Krolls and Hauptmann began spending money that exceeded their means. Hauptmann bought an expensive radio, and Kroll paid for a first-class ticket to Europe for him and his wife the day after Hauptmann's trial. The $14,000 found in Hauptmann's garage? That's roughly a third of the $50,000 ransom. Proof positive? No. The case against John Kroll, or Cemetery John, if that's who he is, is circumstantial, just like the case against Bruno Hauptmann. We may never know the truth about who killed little Charlie Lindbergh, but there is one more coincidence. John Kroll died in 1980. He fell off a ladder, just like little Charlie Lindbergh. Thanks, Dad. That was, that was a really great story. That's one that I've heard many times on different podcasts, and it's always great to hear everyone's research on it because there's a lot out there about this one. Uh, so this next part of the podcast is Trends of the Crime, and this is where I tell you about what the main characters in our story likely would have worn at the time of the crime. I'll start with Charles Lindbergh Sr. By the 1930s, menswear had begun to relax from the previous notion that all men must wear restrictive, tailored suits. There was a move toward lighter fabrics, like cotton or linen, and that is something we still see today in relaxed beachwear, and that reflects in the women's wear that we will get to in a moment. And Lindbergh's career as a pilot allowed him to embrace relaxed menswear with the open-collar jackets made popular by the Men's Dress Reform Party, and he likely paired that with knickerbockers. And Moral Lindbergh, his wife, she looked like all the other it girls of the 1930s. She was all sharp angles and hip bones, a very, very straight body type, and uh, she was often seen in suits and sporty attire. By 1932, dresses resembling the trench coat were all the rage. These dresses had sharp angles, belts with metal buckles, contrasting leather lapels, and were paired with a hat that had to be worn on one side. Other popular looks that year were tartan dresses and satin and lace. And with sporty looks becoming popular in America, Anne was likely seen embracing this trend. Women's sportswear was modern and functional. It was more often worn as resort or leisure wear than actual sportswear. Beach pajamas and short leather trench coats were often worn by women during this period as well. And Bruno Hauptmann, our antagonist of the story, he was a carpenter. Is that correct? It is. He was a carpenter. Okay. 
He was a carpenter. And not, oh, probably not a very good one, considering the ladder clearly. broke into three pieces. But right. But he was. Anyway, <laughs> go on. Yes. Uh, unlike carpenters today, Hauptmann would not have worn blue jeans and work boots. He actually would have likely donned an Arbeitsangsuk as his everyday attire. And as Dad mentioned, he was a German immigrant, and Arbeitsangsuk is German for work suit. Uh, this is a work suit with a soft collared shirt and tie and voluminous trousers with an adjustable strap at the ankle. We will post a photo on our Instagram and Facebook, but this resembles a pilot suit is the best thing I can think of. Have you seen like Air Force guys in their pilot suits, Dad? Well, your husband's in the Air Force, but I've never seen him in well, a pilot suit. He's no, not. I, a pilot. I know what you mean. Yes. <laughs> yes. So it's like army green looking. Uh, however, when Hauptmann was required to dress up, he likely wore a suit similar to what Lindbergh would have worn, but ready to wear or secondhand due to his lower economic status. Well, Macy, you know I like my hats. I do know you like your hats. What, uh, what kind of uh, hats would uh, Charles Lindbergh and, and people he uh, hung around with wear, the, the hoity-toity people in the 1930s? They had, I don't want to say fedoras, but that style, I, I'm going to have to look up the name of that. And then what about uh, what about uh, Anne Mora? Were women wearing hats in the 30s? or They were. They were wearing the hats off to the side. So, men's hats in the 1930s included the... Oh, it did include the fedora. I was wrong. Well, thank goodness. That's I, my favorite hat, as you know. <laughs> I knew it looked like a fedora. It is a fedora. Has been confirmed. A trilby. Not sure what that is. A homburg, which that's the one I was thinking of. Mm -hmm. That looks like a fedora. A bowler hat that kind of looks like the Charlie Chaplin mm -hmm. type of style. A boater. Boater which is, I, I'm picturing Fred Astaire mm -hmm. in Holiday Inn wearing this. Right. It's the right. white straw with the thick red ribbon. What about, uh, what about hats in the summer? Were straw hats in fashion then? I'm not I sure. I guess you'll have to look that up too, <laughs> won't you? But we can go on. Um, well, before I get, well, let me see. Yes. You were thinking yes? I was thinking yes. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> You are correct, sir. Yes, the straw hats, like the boater ones and straw fedoras. Mm -hmm. And let me look up women's hats. Oh, this is what it's called. Now it's coming back to me. A cloche hat. Cloche. Mm. Cloche. Oh, cloche. 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 Okay. Women were wearing cloche hats, which is a flat-brimmed hat tilted to one side, concealing one eye and one ear. Ooh. Very sexy, mysterious. I, I was going to say that, but I didn't know it would yes. be appropriate. Oh, is it? <laughs> I think so, yes. <laughs> well, I think we're going to get more scandalous in a moment when we talk about Lindbergh, but yeah, we'll we get will. to that. <laughs> Charlie was a player. Oh, he was. We'll, we'll get to that. The other popular woman's hat was a Basque beret worn slantwise, such that half the head remained bare. Ooh, this is like when ankles, you know, like the ankle was showing. Ooh. Those kind of hats need to come back, I think. <laughs> They're good hats. Oh, Dad, lastly, fun fact that goes with our 
our air air theme this week. Mm-hmm. Amelia Earhart, ah. famous pilot of the of the day, designed a line of sportswear for American department stores. Interesting. I see. All right, so now it's time to discuss the crime. But first, I want to know why you chose a French 75 today. Well, I chose the French 75 because uh, Charles Lindbergh was the first man to fly solo from New York to Paris, and Paris is in France. Uh, So I thought that was an appropriate cocktail. Um, The French 75 was was actually named after a a 75-millimeter French field gun that was used in World War I. Mm. And uh, people thought that the French 75 gave about the same kind of kick that the uh, 75 gun would give. Um, I would agree. It was, uh, it was invented in France, but at uh, uh, the New York bar of Paris. That's so funny. It was invented in France, but it actually uh, an Irishman who ran the New York bar is credited with inventing the drink. Oh, okay. Will you describe for everyone what it tastes like? Um, tart. It's got lemon juice in it uh, with just enough sugar to, to tame it just a bit. Uh, and then uh, the base liquor is, is gin. So we always mm. want a good high-quality gin. Of course. And uh, then we top it off with some good champagne. Oh, yeah. It's a good one. And we will have the recipe on our Instagram and all of our social media and all of that. All right, let's get into it, Dad. All right. First, let me say, <laughs> Charles Lindbergh was a hottie, okay? I, I wouldn't think, know. I think he looks like a mix of Ryan Gosling and JFK. Hmm. What are your thoughts? You don't have to say if he's hot or not, but that comparison. Well, he was... He was uh one of the most sought-after bachelors in in the late 20s and early 30s. Um, But uh, his personality, he was very, very shy. He grew up in a a conservative religious home in Minnesota. Um, So uh, he was, uh, I'm sure he was intimidated by all the actresses and heiresses that uh, were chasing him. him. (laughs) All of a sudden, yes. But... um, yeah, I'd say he was good looking. For sure. Maybe not as good looking as me, but <laughs> you know, he's not. good looking, yes. <laughs> Who is? <laughs> well, I think not. <laughs> um, you ha- you know some dirt on Charles Lindbergh. And uh, I want them to hear it. I do. <laughs> um, I said he grew up in a very uh, religious home, very shy, um, but he outgrew that. Um, <laughs> That's a by way to the, say it. Uh, by the, the end of World War II, um, he had acquired uh, three mistresses in Germany. And uh, two of the mistresses were actually sisters. Uh, and between uh, those three mistresses, he had seven children. And uh, he and Anne had six. Of course, little Charlie didn't make it. So uh, he had 12 surviving children. There's no evidence that... Uh, the American families ever met the German families, mm-hmm. but uh, based on some correspondence, uh, all four of the women knew about the other women and just decided not to rock the boat. I guess not if sure it's, why. If it's it working, been, it's working, I guess. Could have been the money or it could have been the <laughs> Ryan Gosling JFK effect. I don't know. <laughs> I 
guess when you look like that, maybe you can get away with whatever. At least, at least two of the uh, two of the German children are still alive. Wow. Huh. Interesting. They should write a book. They may. Interesting. All right. The next big thing I want to get into is this ladder. Mm-hmm. So as we mentioned in the trends of the crime section, Hauptmann was a carpenter, mm-hmm. but I feel like this ladder looks pretty bad. Did you see it? I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> looks yeah. like it'd be difficult to climb, difficult to hang on to, definitely difficult to hold a baby, grab a baby, hold a baby, walk down a ladder by yourself. So mm-hmm. I'm on team. He didn't do it by himself. I am too. I, I don't think he could have. In fact, they found two sets of footprints by the ladder. So obviously someone climbed up the ladder and at least right. one person, What's holding maybe it? two were holding it. Um, when they searched, uh, when they searched Hauptmann's house, they found a missing floorboard and one of the pieces of the broken ladder matched the missing floorboard. So it looks like somebody built that ladder out of lumber that was just laying around Hauptman's house. So it wasn't constructed properly. It it probably broke and whoever had the baby fell and, and that's how that's how Charlie died. died. I, yeah. I, I it doesn't appear that they started out to, to try to kill the child. They may have I think they started but, for the money, yeah. But you know, he was probably he was probably dead almost immediately. Before he got down from the ladder, yeah. Yeah. That's what yeah. I think too. Um, I did learn some history on how the ladder helped them convict Hauptmann or kind of the process of that. Well, share with us. Oh, I will. Um, Arthur Kaler, he was a Wisconsin wood expert. Now, do you know that wood experts are real? I didn't know that. Well, in my legal career, (laughs) I never had occasion to to hire one or call one as a witness. So uh... Interesting. <laughs> no, so I mean, no, it doesn't surprise me, but no, I did not know. Well, he was a wood expert, and he examined the ladder to help solve the case. He begged the New Jersey Police Department to put him on the case to help him to help them solve it by examining the wood on the ladder. They agreed, and he asked the police department to search nearby lumber yards for wood samples so that he can maybe find out where the builder bought the wood, get some receipts and figure out who it is. Simple enough. They searched 1,500 lumber yards and they mailed the samples to Kaler who compared every sample to every piece of wood, every different piece of wood in the ladder. And he actually found a match and they traced the wood to the National Lumber and Millwork Company in the Bronx. Unfortunately, the National Lumber and Millwork Company was dead end because they didn't have a receipt that matched a person who was a suspect or a person of interest. So nothing happened with the ladder for a while. But then when Hauptmann caught the attention from the gold note that his license plate was written on, Kaler told the investigators to search his home for any missing wood, and that's when they found the missing floorboard that you mentioned. And Kaler took rail 16 from the ladder, and it fit perfectly in the floorboard. And that was really what put him in the hole, basically, for this crime. Or the chair. (laughs) In the chair. (laughs) Not funny, sorry. (laughs) So, that's what happened, and that's how the ladder helped solve. I'm doing air quotes around solve because 
I don't believe it's completely solved, but well, it was, it was that's a, what helped to convict him. It was a very important piece of evidence, obviously. Oh, yes. So with that, so before I learned that, I was skeptical if they had enough evidence on Halpin to convict him. You are an attorney. Would it have been enough before the wood? Or, and is it enough with the wood? Or, because I know that they obviously wanted a conviction because the whole world was super mad and upset that this baby had been stolen and killed. So when that happens, you're trying to convict someone quickly. Mm -hmm. So tell me if that evidence would suffice today, is what I'm wondering. Well, the case against Hauptmann was, was almost entirely circumstantial. There were no direct witnesses. There was no direct evidence such as fingerprints. Um, but really, a lot of criminal cases today are circumstantial. Uh, I, I think there was enough evidence. The latter, the, the gold certificates, the, the wood that matched the box the gold certificates were in, the fact that a, a, a very poor carpenter suddenly had $14,000 laying around the house. Um, so yes, I, I, I think there was sufficient evidence. I don't think Hauptman was railroaded, but like you, I'm, I'm convinced there had to be other suspects. Now, whether right. it's John Kroll, you know, I don't know. Um, now, interestingly, the, uh, the ransom notes that were sent, uh, they still exist. I'm sure they're in an FBI file somewhere. Hmm. And uh, conceivably, uh, if they, uh, they could peel off the stamps and there could be DNA still on the back of the stamps. And if uh, Hauptman uh, had any living descendants or if you know, other suspects had living descendants, it's conceivable that they could run a DNA match and, and that could uh, you know, be even more evidence. But to my knowledge, um, you know, none of those, there are, no, there are no descendants that they could do that on. I'm looking up right now to see, in fact, if, if Hauptman uh, had, has any uh, living descendants. And um, evidently there was a son named Richard, but uh, that it? I'm certainly, I'm certain he must be dead by now. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, it was a long answer, but <laughs> yeah, I think there was enough evidence to conv convict Hauptman. Well, you know, that DNA stuff, that's how they caught the Golden State Killer mm -hmm. recently. Yeah. So that to me, I'm sure we'll talk about a lot more in this podcast, but that is so fascinating with... Um, What's it called? Those services where you send in your DNA mm -hmm. and they, the family tree services. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering how many cold cases we're going to be able to solve based off mm -hmm. of things like that. It's mm -hmm. very, very interested to see. Yeah. I mean, as long as you can, can confirm that someone is a descendant, uh, I think, you know, it goes a long way to providing a, a match. Mm -hmm. For um, sure. Well, something else that helped solve the case was FDR and the gold standard. Mm -hmm. Did you know this? This was interesting, I thought. I, I know about the gold standard, but go, uh -huh. ahead and, go ahead and explain it. This really took me back to history class in high school. So, moving away from the gold standard, which was part of FDR's presidency, helped, helped solve the case because... The ransom was paid in gold certificates, which went out of circulation with departure from the gold standard. So that's why the person who wrote Hauptmann's license plate on the gold note, that's why he did that. 
he was suspicious because he thought, huh, why does this person have a gold note? That's weird. And he probably heard in the news the ransom was paid in gold certificates. And so that's what, that's something else that really helped solve it. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. That, uh, again, that was a, that was a mistake. Yep. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> So so many, of the, so, many of the, so many of the crimes we're going to be talking about on this podcast, uh, you can just look back and say, well, mistake number one, mistake right. number two, mistake number three. That's It's funny because I've listened to true crime podcasts for a long time now, and these people always think, oh, I'm going to get away with it. And so rarely do they because yeah. they can't, you can't think of everything. Somehow the Zodiac is still not caught, but... One of these days, he's mm-hmm. going to get caught. We're going to figure it out. But not today, unfortunately. Uh, something else crazy. I don't know if you saw this on my notes, Dad. But guess how much $50,000 in 1932 is worth today? I I didn't see it on the notes, but uh, I'm going to guess uh, well over a million dollars. Not quite, but you're close. $923,000. That baffled me. I was, yeah. I, I mean, 50,000 sounds like a lot. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even think about inflation. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. I, I said a million because in one of our uh, cases we're going to be uh, talking about in a few weeks, I knew $70,000 was over a million. Oh, okay. Yep. So this one was just mm-hmm. under a million. Insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, something else is I wanted to talk about the fact the theory that this was an inside job that mm-hmm. seems to be a common one that like in John Benet Ramsey they thought Patsy did it or mm-hmm. uh, who else the husband always did it that common mm-hmm. saying which mm-hmm. I believe more often than not the husband <laughs> always does it <laughs> but that's personal belief so yeah it always seems to be common in these high profile cases yeah. well I mean anytime you you have a a locked room mystery right and and someone gets in the house and kidnaps someone or steals something i think the the initial suspicion has to go well how did this person get in well mm-hmm. somebody let him in right how did that person open the baby's window i'm sure the police are well somebody opened the window or maybe somebody actually carried the baby down the ladder mm-hmm. um so it doesn't surprise me that that's, yeah. that's always where you go. Um, mm-hmm. Did you see that a lot as an attorney or even not for murders, but just for general things? I, I never had any cool cases like this. <laughs> oh, okay. No. <laughs> never mind then. Um, With me, it was, it was always, I don't know how the pot got in my car. <laughs> it's not mine. It's not mine. That's funny. I did think that was so sad that her alibi checked out and she killed herself mm-hmm. yeah it was it was sometimes the police can be a little scummy with their <laughs> uh, interrogation yeah. techniques well they were in a, like you said they were in a hurry to solve the case there was right. a lot of pressure on them and um, turned out to be wrong this time yep sad well the trial trial of the century mm-hmm. as it is still referred to 60,000 people went there to watch it Mm -hmm. this was there was no tv it Mm -hmm. wasn't on tv that's a lot of people to make their way to the courthouse yeah back back in the day the two most popular spectator 
events um, were probably high-profile criminal cases like this and uh, religious revivals. That's where. What's a religious revival? Well, that's where you got a you got a preacher like Billy Sunday, who's the 1920s equivalent of uh, Billy Graham, and. Mm-hmm. People just flock to hear him. They want to see all the strange things that are going down, people speaking in tongues and running oh, around. Yeah. And like I said, they didn't have TV, so this this was their entertainment. Right. Um, and um, I, I did go on that one of the most reliable internet sources uh, that exists, Wikipedia. Oh, of and, course. <laughs> uh, there are over 20 cases uh, that Wikipedia lists as the trial of the century in the, in the oh. 20th century. So. What are some of those? <laughs> oh, well, there's there's this one. There's Leopold and Loeb, okay. which you and I will be we'll discussing. We'll be covering, yes. Uh, Venzetti, the, the anarchist who planted a bomb near the attorney general's house. The Scopes Monkey Trial, which brought together both religion and a court case. Oh, um, course oj i was gonna say it was oj on there the oj case Uh so uh you know whenever there's a high profile case even today you can turn on cnn or fox and you'll see the little tagline trial of the century right (laughs) was this the first and the earliest no sacco and benzetti would have been before this one as would leopold and Loeb. oh okay oops I should know and that. And the Scopes Monkey Trial. So okay, they, so no, it was not no, the first. No, but it was the I latest 30s, at that that's, point. Okay, right. Well, something good did come out of this. It's called Lindbergh's Law, mm-hmm. which I also hadn't heard of before. Um, it allows federal authorities the right to step in and pursue kidnappers across state lines once they have crossed state lines with their victims. Mm-hmm. And this happened because state police can't go out of certain lines. What's mm-hmm. the word I'm looking for? Jurisdiction. Jurisdiction. I thought that was it, but yeah, I didn't say it. So that's why this came to be, because federal can look anywhere in the country mm-hmm. and state has to stop at their jurisdiction. Right, and then more than a few criminals have gotten off because a prosecutor can't definitively state where the crime occurred. Right. Well, this was fun. It was fun, yes. Um, Our next episode is going to be about George Remus. Do you want to give him a little preview? Well, George Remus was called the king of the bootleggers. Um, We think of bootleggers such as Al Capone back in the 1920s. George Remus, though, was actually the the John D. Rockefeller of uh, illegal liquor. He controlled most of the points of manufacture and distribution. Capone got a lot of his liquor from George Remus. Mm. Um, And so we'll be talking about how he built his empire, and we'll be talking also about how he uh, killed his wife in in broad daylight daylight. (laughs) and got away with it. Got away with with it, it. yes. And I'm going to give you guys a little trivia question uh, that we will put on our social media, and you can answer your question there. What famous literary character is rumored to be based off of George Remus? I'm not going to give you any choices because I can't think of any others at the moment, but you put your guesses down there. And what's the cocktail next week? The uh, George Remus sidecar. All right. So we're going to put our recipe up uh, before the episode. And yeah, I'm very excited to cover this one. We like Dad and I like booze. We like Jazz Age, so it'll be a fun one. 
Now, does anyone win anything or if they answer the trivia question or is it just the satisfaction of the job well done? Good question, Dad. How about we give them a t-shirt? I like it. <laughs> we do have merch. Uh, I will post the link to the merch in the episode notes and on our social media. And But maybe you'll win a free shirt and you don't even have to go buy one. So better get that. In. Oh, and no Googling allowed. That's cheating. So, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening and we will see you next week. And we will be contacting Google and tracing all of you we to will. see if you, if you actually Googled this question. And that will mean immediate disqualification. Of course. Of course. All right. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. Join our Facebook group to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive videos and content. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion, and check out our merch line. There is a link in the episode notes and on our social media. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Kate Mays. Thank you to Alex Joachim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.